Jeff's Midweek Bible Study, a verse-by-verse teaching through the Bible with Pastor Jeff Lassane. We hope this podcast encourages your faith, and now, here's Pastor Jeff. Well, hello to everybody, and welcome to the Bible Study Podcast. We're very grateful to God for all the listeners to this podcast, which now includes folks tuning in from 28 different countries. How does that even happen? I don't know, but we're happy that it does. Grateful to the Lord. And we've had over 12,000 listens to this podcast since we began in April of last year. Well, in this podcast, we're in Mark chapter 6, and we continue to make our way verse by verse through the gospel of Mark. And I'll begin with the story of a Christian cowboy who lost his favorite pocket Bible while he was out mending fences on his cattle range. Three days later, one of the cows came walking up with the Bible in its mouth. The cowboy couldn't believe it. He took the Bible out of the mouth of the cow, raised his eyes up to heaven, and declared, It's a miracle! Not really, said the cow. Your name was written inside the front cover. That's a silly joke, although I like it. But for the record, there were a couple of animals that did speak in the Bible. The first was the serpent in the Garden of Eden, and the other was Balaam's donkey. No talking cows that I'm aware of in the Bible, though. Hey, speaking of miracles, I remember very well February 1980, watching the Winter Olympics that were taking place in Lake Placid, New York. Uh, I was watching them on television. And of course, the biggest story from those Olympics was the U.S. hockey team, which was made up of amateur and college players, and how they defeated the mighty Soviet Union professional team, which had won hockey gold in six of the seven previous Olympics. That improbable U.S. victory became known as the Miracle on Ice. It truly was an amazing and unbelievable upset in sports history. In fact, it's voted, it was voted the top sporting event of the 20th century by Sports Illustrated. Many of us remember those final seconds counting down and how announcer Al Michaels famously asked the question, do you believe in miracles? And then moments later shouting yes as the final buzzer sounded. It was pretty exciting. But as amazing as that U.S. victory over the Soviet team was, it wasn't actually a miracle in the true sense of the word. However, later that same year, 1980, when God forgave me of my sins and made me a new creation in Christ, well, that was a miracle of the Holy Spirit. A good working definition of a miracle would be supernatural acts of God that surpass the laws of nature, revealing God's divine power, authority, and glory. I didn't write that definition. I found it, and I really like it. I'm going to repeat it, if you don't mind. Supernatural acts of God. This is what a miracle would be, the definition of a miracle biblically. Supernatural acts of God that surpass the laws of nature, revealing God's divine power, authority, and glory. So the virgin birth was a miracle. Jesus turning water into wine was a miracle. The raising up of Jairus' 12-year-old daughter from the dead was a miracle. 
And the story that we're now looking at in Mark chapter 6 was also a miracle. Putting the four Gospels together, there are over three dozen recorded miracles uh, in the New Testament. But of all those miracles, only two are recorded in all four Gospels. That would be the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, and then the feeding of the 5,000, which is the miracle in the passage before us. The miraculous feeding of the 5,000 involved far more people than any of Jesus' other miracles. And that fact, by the way, removes any debate or denial about the miracle because it included thousands of witnesses who saw it and experienced it. So good luck denying it. All of those thousands of people would go on to tell their children and their grandchildren about what happened that day. In fact, the only way that unsaved critics can deny this miracle is by denying all of Christ's miracles, and there are many who do exactly that. Also, most of Christ's miracles were restorative, meaning that, well, he would restore people's sight or their hearing or their health or even their life. But in this miracle, Jesus created something big out of something small. He turned a, uh, well, I guess he turned a kid's happy meal into a sit-down dinner for thousands of people. Before we consider this familiar story, let's talk about why Jesus did miracles, and let me offer you three reasons. First off, miracles confirmed Christ's identity. His miracles were clearly intended to identify him as being God in the flesh. As Nicodemus said to Jesus in John chapter 3, Teacher, we know that you are from God because no one can do the signs or literally the miracles you have done unless God is with them. Even so, his miracles didn't always convince people. When Jesus was debating with the unsaved religious leaders about his identity, who he really was, he said to them, I told you who I am and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, referring to his miracles, they bear witness of me. Then he said, if you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. That's recorded, that conversation in John chapter 10. There's a great story about the famous 19th century uh, artist, Gustave Doré, who sketched hundreds of wonderfully detailed black and white pictures of Bible stories. While traveling in a foreign country one day, Doré had lost his passport. And when he attempted to cross the border back into his home country of France, he was detained because he had no passport. When he told the border officials who he was, they gave him some paper and a pencil and instructed him to draw the Eiffel Tower in Paris. Doré proceeded to draw a beautiful pencil sketch of the Eiffel Tower against the Paris backdrop. The officials immediately allowed him to cross the border based on the evidence of his work. Hey, that's exactly what the miraculous works of Jesus did. They provided the evidence of his true and divine authority. Secondly, then, the miracles of Jesus demonstrated his authority. Back in chapter 2, we remember that those men who lowered their paralyzed friend down through a roof in front of Jesus. We talked about that in an earlier study. And the man was looking, obviously, for a physical healing, but first Jesus met the greater need, and he said to him, your sins are forgiven. 
When this offended the religious leaders, Jesus said to them that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. Jesus then commanded the paralyzed man to rise up and walk. That miraculous healing demonstrated his divine authority. So the miracles uh, demonstrated and proved his identity, his authority. And then thirdly, the miracles validated his ministry. In other words, his miracles not only proved that he was the son of God, but it proved that his ministry was divine, especially his message to people to repent and believe for the kingdom of God was at hand. Today now, we don't depend on ongoing miracles in order for us to believe. We have the miracle of his resurrection and we have his inspired word. We believe that God still does miracles, but we don't need them in order to believe. Even so, there are people today who think that if God were to do a miracle for them, that somehow then maybe they could believe. But the miracles of his virgin birth and his resurrection already took place and people refuse to believe it. What can the Lord add to that or what should he add to that? Well, at this time, let's read our verses from Mark uh, chapter 6. We're going to be picking up in verse 30. It's a tad bit of a lengthy passage, so I appreciate your patience on this. We'll get through it quickly, and then we'll have a few moments to discuss it. We read that the apostles gathered to Jesus and told him all things, both what they had done and what they had taught. And Jesus said to them, come aside by yourselves to a deserted place and let's rest a while. For there were many coming and going, and they didn't even have time to eat. So they departed to a deserted place in the boat by themselves. But the multitude saw them departing, and many ran there ahead of them on foot from all the cities. They arrived before them and came together to him. And Jesus, when he came out, saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion for them, because they were like sheep, not having a shepherd. So he began to teach them many things. When the day was now far spent, his disciples came to him and said, This is a deserted place, and already the hour is late. Send the people away that they may go into the surrounding country and villages and buy themselves bread, for they have nothing to eat. But Jesus said to them, You give them something to eat. And the disciples said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give them something to eat? But Jesus said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And they found out, and they said, Five loaves and two fish. Then he commanded them to make the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in ranks, in hundreds, and in groups of 50. And when he had taken the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven, blessed and broke the loaves, and gave them to his disciples to set before the people, and the two fish he divided among them all. So they all ate and were filled. And they took up 12 baskets full of fragments and of the fish, Now, those who had eaten the loaves were about 5,000 men. My title for this message is The Little Boy with the Little Lunch. If you've been a Christian for a fair amount of time, then you've read and heard this story before. And if you're a longtime believer, you've read it dozens of times and, well, you've probably heard it preached almost as many times. But there's so much truth and encouragement here for us if we'll look and listen with fresh ears and fresh eyes. Because we have the blessing of this miracle being recorded in all four Gospels, we have the benefit of some added details that we wouldn't have if it were only recorded in, say, one of the Gospels. 
In other words, the more gospel writers who record it, the more details we have. Because, listen, each writer tells the same story through their own viewpoint. For example, Matthew tells us what some of the other gospel writers tells us, that this was a crowd of 5,000 men, but Matthew adds that it did not include the women and children who were also there. Therefore, this gathering was more likely around 20,000 people. If most of these men were married and had a couple of kids, easily 20,000 people. And then John tells us that all this took place around Passover time, which gives us actually some very important insight. In John's gospel, he references the three Passovers that took place during the three-year ministry of Jesus. Now, you and I know that the ministry of Jesus lasted for three years, but guess what? The New Testament never tells us that. So how do we know that the ministry of Jesus was three years? We know it from the Passover timeline in John's gospel. In John chapter 2, after Jesus began his ministry and performed his first miracle at Cana, turning water into wine at a wedding feast, John goes on to say that Jesus went into Jerusalem at Passover time, and it was the first Passover during Jesus' ministry. Then in John 6, as he records this miracle of Jesus feeding the multitudes up in Galilee, he marks the calendar once again by recording that this miracle took place near Passover time. So this was now the second Passover of Jesus' ministry. And at the time of this miracle, Jesus was about one year away from his appointment at the cross. Then in the last several chapters of his gospel, John gives us many details about Jesus and the disciples in the upper room just before Christ's arrest and crucifixion, which took place during Passover, when Jesus became our Passover lamb. That was the third Passover of Jesus' ministry. So John's gospel gives us Passover markers through the three-year ministry of Jesus including now this second Passover time when Jesus was in Galilee performing this miracle. I would also point out that the Gospels record that Jesus had the multitudes to sit down on the green grass to receive their food, and people are often quick to point out the mention of this grass uh, tells us that this took place in the springtime. And, and I don't disagree with that, but listen, more specifically, John tells us it was Passover time. So it was definitely in the spring, whether there was grass or not. This miracle then took place by the Sea of Galilee. And it's worth noting that Jesus performed more miracles in Galilee than any other place in his ministry. Galilee is not an exceptionally large area. It's roughly 50 miles by 25 miles, and the, the lake, the Sea of Galilee, takes up a good portion of that. So it's safe to say that everyone in that region had heard about the miracles that Jesus had done. The ministry of Jesus and his disciples was very busy, and so at this point, Jesus wanted to take the disciples aside just to eat and get a little bit of rest, as we read here in Mark 6. It was Vans Havner who said, if you don't come apart and rest, you'll come apart. And that's really true. You know, during my first few months as a pastor, I remember being so blessed about serving in pastoral ministry that I said to another pastor, I don't think I'll ever need a vacation. Well, he had been in ministry for a few years, so he smiled, looked at me, and he said, that'll definitely change. 
Well, he wasn't being negative at all. He was right. And his simple point was that as blessed as we were to serve in ministry, we would eventually need a break to rest and recharge. And he was exactly right. Now, as Jesus and the guys took a boat from Capernaum and rode to the region of Bethsaida, looking for some rest, many of the people ran around the lake on food. They could, you can look across the lake and see at the widest point, the lake is maybe six or seven or eight miles across, but even a little more narrow at other places. So they could actually look and see where the boat was going. And it was going to Bethsaida, which is where Peter, Andrew, Philip, and Nathaniel had all come from. It was a little fishing village that they had grown up in. And Bethsaida means house of fish. Now the miracle of the loaves and the fish was going to take place in that area. Sadly, like Capernaum, Bethsaida's uh, legacy was unbelief. Later on, Jesus would say in Luke 10, Woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the miracles that happened in you had happened in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes. Therefore, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than it will be for you. As we already discussed, this took place in the spring around the time of Passover. And I have visited this region both in the spring and in the fall season, and there was a dramatic difference. Springtime, you know, it's green grass and pretty wildflowers and rock badgers climbing around the rocks and the hills. And in the fall, it's just brown and dry and drab. As Jesus and the disciples were trying to grab some time to relax and eat, they found that many in that large crowd were already there waiting for him. At this point, it was an interruption of their private time, but Jesus had compassion on them. From my experience of serving at a large church, thousands of people, I can vouch for the constant demand of people needing something. On any given Sunday morning, if I was walking across the church campus to take care of something, I was usually stopped by several different people. Somebody needed prayer, somebody else had a question, or they needed some other assistance. And uh, when we were eating lunch on campus, people would often stop by, you know, a few of us pastors would be eating lunch and people would stop by our table with questions and requests or can you pray for me or whatever during our meal. I don't mention any of this as a complaint. I'm simply stating that as we see here, ministry can be very busy, especially when thousands of people are involved. But it's all important. And like Jesus, spiritual leaders need to have compassion on the multitudes Here, Jesus saw them as being like sheep without a shepherd. Now, that's a phrase that probably doesn't have much impact on us, but sheep without a shepherd is a very serious situation. Sheep without a shepherd will die because they don't know how to find food or water for themselves. They have to be led and um, guided from pasture to pasture and from stream to stream. Sheep are also skittish animals that they just can't protect themselves. And if they end up on their backs, they can't even get up. So without a shepherd, the sheep will die. And that's how Jesus saw this multitude with compassion and spiritually speaking. In verse 36, as evening was approaching, the disciples urged Jesus to send the people away. And really, I think for good reason, because there was no food for them. Uh, They can sound insensitive, but in my opinion, I think they were actually being quite practical. Unlike a lot of church gatherings today, there weren't any food trucks where the people could get pizza and tacos and shaved ice. So more than being insensitive, they were being practical and even responsible. But in response, Jesus said something quite remarkable to them. You give them something to eat. 
If we do the math and each one of the 12 disciples had a backpack with Snickers bars in there, they would have needed nearly 1,700 Snicker bars each just to give everyone a snack. And a Snickers bar wasn't going to make for a great dinner. In John's gospel, we have the added detail that Jesus specifically asked Philip where they could get bread to feed the people. But then John explains that Jesus was simply testing him. He already knew what he was going to do. In answer to Jesus, the disciples' first response was, well, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread to feed the people? 200 denarii was apparently how much money they had in their ministry funds bag minus whatever Judas Iscariot had been stealing. So the disciples thought that perhaps Jesus wanted them to take the money and run to the nearest town and buy enough bread to feed everybody. The Gospels then tell us that the disciples made mention of a boy who had five loaves and two fish. However, John's Gospel specifically tells us that it was Andrew who said to Jesus, there is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish, but... What are they among so many people? So if you don't mind, I'd like to just take a moment to talk about Andrew, who was the brother of Peter, one of the 12 disciples. Now, some of the other disciples, like Peter, James, and John, they were much more in the limelight during Christ's ministry. But there's so much for us to appreciate about Andrew, beginning with the fact that he was the first of the disciples to follow Jesus. We read about this in John chapter 1. And then from there, whenever we read about Andrew, he's bringing people to Jesus. In fact, after he began to follow Jesus, it wasn't long before Andrew brought his brother Peter to meet the Lord. So not only was Andrew the first disciple to follow Jesus, he was also the first disciple to introduce another disciple to Jesus. Then in the story before us, it was Andrew who brought the young boy and his happy meal to Jesus. And we'll discuss in more detail about that, but it was the boy's happy meal that Jesus used to feed thousands of people. And later on, when Jesus was in Jerusalem, there were some Greeks who came seeking to meet Jesus and to speak with him. And once again, we read that it was Andrew who took those Greeks and introduced them to Jesus. Andrew was constantly bringing people to Jesus, and may the same be said of us. Well, back to our passage here. After Andrew brought the small lad and his lunch to Jesus, the Lord proceeded to feed this massive crowd. First off, Jesus began by instructing the disciples to have the people sit down on the grass. And by the way, John's gospel makes an interesting distinction. In John 6, Jesus tells them to have the people sit down, And then we read that in the next verse, all the men sat down. As we've discussed, there were 5,000 men, but that doesn't include all the women and children who were also there. John then uses two different Greek words for describing them, one translated people and the other translated men. So the 5,000 men sat down in one section, while the other thousands of women and children sat down in another section not far away. And that's because in Jewish custom and culture, the women and children did not eat with men in public. Secondly, Jesus instructed the disciples to have all the people sit down in ranks and rows and in groups of 50 and 100. And you know, for one thing, their seating arrangement in groups actually created aisles between the people, which would make the disciples serving them with the food much easier. The noun form of the word for the people sitting in ranks actually means garden beds and flower rows. 
So once everyone had sat down, the hillside scene would have looked like a massive flower garden. If you had a drone and flew it up above, it would look like flower gardens and rows of people in the garden. Thirdly, there were five loaves and two fish. Now, when you and I hear the word loaves, we're probably picturing good-sized loaves of bread. In my mind, I'm already picturing a nice big loaf of French bread or you know sourdough bread. However, these were actually little small pancake-sized little circles, if you will, of pita bread. And the word used for fish is referring to small sardine-sized fish. All of this underscores the fact that Jesus took something very small and turned it all into something very large, enough fish and bread to feed upwards of 20,000 people. After having all of the people sit on the grass, he took the boys' lunch, five small portions of bread, two little sardine fish, and he blessed it. He gave thanks. I wonder what the crowd was thinking, along with the disciples, when Jesus was thanking the Father for that little bit of food. Imagine the people and the disciples hearing Jesus say something like, Father, we thank you for providing this food to feed all of these people. And if you take away all of the people and you just have Jesus and the disciples there and the Lord's holding up the bread and giving thanks, well, it's a preview of what Jesus would do when he instituted communion with his disciples a year later in the upper room. After giving thanks, Jesus passed it out to his disciples who in turn distributed it to the people, and there was more than enough food for, we're guessing, 20,000 people to eat. Here in verse 42, we read that all of the people ate and were filled. More than a Snickers bar for when you're feeling hangry, (laughs) this was a full meal, and the Greek wording actually means that everyone's hunger was fully or completely satisfied. And talk about putting an exclamation point on this uh, miracle, we read that there were 12 baskets of leftovers, exactly enough, one for each of the 12 disciples. You know, there's many of pieces of application that we can take away with us from this familiar story, so let's identify a few of them before we close out this message. Let's begin with the fact that Jesus had compassion for the people and that he made time for them, even though he and his disciples were tired and hungry. With Jesus as our example, we need to see people as less of an interruption and more of an opportunity. The people interrupted the rest time of Jesus and his disciples, but Jesus was able to use that interruption to teach and feed them spiritually and then to feed them physically. As a pastor, there have been many times when I would be preparing a Bible study or working on a ministry budget and someone called the church wanting to speak with me. There were times when those calls were not urgent, and it was acceptable for me to call them back later that day. But at other times, those calls were urgent, like the sudden death of a loved one. At that point, nothing I was doing was as important as me needing to minister to that family. In the same way, Jesus immediately took time to minister to these people. And listen, please, opportunities often come to us disguised as interruptions. I'm just going to let that one sit for a second. Another point of application is the lesson that none of our problems are too big for God to handle. As Gabriel had said to the Virgin Mary, with God, nothing shall be called impossible. Feeding 20,000 people in the wilderness with a small lunch is an impossible task unless and until 
we give it over to God. If God can create the heavens and the earth out of nothing, if God can part the waters of the Red Sea or the Jordan River, if God can multiply a widow's jar of oil into several full kettles, and if God can feed thousands of people with just two fish and five loaves of bread, what then exactly is the problem that you and I are facing that God cannot handle? It was Warren Wiersbe who said, when we put God between ourselves and the problem, God gets bigger and the problem gets smaller. Here's a third piece of application we don't want to miss. When we give God whatever we have, however little it might be, he can use it and multiply it to help others. By the rod in the hand of Moses, basically a walking stick, God brought plagues upon Pharaoh and Egypt, and then God parted the waters of the Red Sea. With a simple sling in the hand of David, God brought down the giant warrior Goliath and gave Israel a miraculous victory over the superior and larger Philistine army. With a small trowel in the hand of Nehemiah, God used him to lead the people of Israel in the rebuilding of the walls around Jerusalem in the face of overwhelming opposition. We are the little boy with the little lunch if we allow God to use us. And so then God can take whatever little resources we have and accomplish whatever he wants to. Think about what God can do through us with little verses of scripture, little words of encouragement, little acts of kindness, little moments of evangelism, little times of prayer, little efforts at serving, and little seeds of faith. Anything you have is valuable if you are willing to give it to God and allow him to use it for his glory and for his purposes. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen.